Well, good morning, Good Shepherd. I'm Talbot Davis. I'm the pastor here. I always, I love, I love all of our videos that come right before the message. I really love that one. And I'm sure it'll be shock most of you to realize or to learn that my learning curve when it comes to TikTok was just a little too steep for me ever to, ever to begin. And uh, I'm just really glad that you're here. This is week three of this series that's called Learning Curve, a series where we're really eavesdropping in on Jesus as he has some intimate and personal conversations with his closest followers about what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. And today's message is, is called, This Could Be Heaven or This Could Be Hell. And this message, like all the messages in the series to this point, come from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. So if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to locate the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8, verses 34 and following. And if you're, maybe you have a Bible that looks like this, or maybe your Bible's loaded on your phone, which is just fine with us. Or maybe, maybe you don't have either of those, and the good news in that case is that the words are going to be up on the screen as they are whenever we gather together. And the reason for all of this, the reason we, we love it for you to check the scripture for yourself rather than taking my word for it, is that we believe a couple of really vital things about the Bible. And one of those things that we believe about the Bible is that although this looks like a book, I'm holding it in my hands like a book, this is not a book. It's a library, a collection of a lot of books written by a lot of authors over a long span of time in multiple writing styles. And that's really vital to know. When we're in the Gospel of Mark, it, it's quite uh, technically the section of the library devoted to biography. Four different biographers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one subject, Jesus. And that's a, just a fact that a lot of people don't know, and we found it helpful to remind ourselves about it when we gather. The second thing that we believe moves to that realm of deeply held conviction. And when I say what I'm going to say, that we believe in leadership here, you might be like, yes, thank you for believing it and saying it. Or you might be like, I'm not quite sure. Wherever you are in that range is fine. We just like to be honest and clear. And, and, and it's this, that we believe in leadership. This is the only library like this on earth. God really did ensure that the Bible is inspired and eternal and true. We believe that the Bible's inspired at Good Shepherd. And because we have that kind of strange, maybe countercultural belief, we do something odd when we talk about the Bible, and it's this, we lift it up. And if you've not been here before, you haven't tuned in before, and you're like, that's just a kind of an odd moment y'all do. <laughs> you, know, you know how we, yes, we, we admit it. But we've discovered that this is a moment of oddity that shapes our identity as a community we're a collection of people joyfully surrendered to the authority of the word and ready for its power to be let loose in our lives. And that includes today. So let's pray. So God, I, I thank you for the power that is inherent in your word. And I thank you for the power that's built into the gospel. Lord, I, I just ask that you allow me the incredible privilege of tapping into that power today for the sake of everyone within the sound of my voice. Amen. So uh, in, a, in a little bit, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you something in, in just a few minutes, and I'm really kind of excited to tell you this thing that I'm going to tell you in a few minutes, and I've been excited about telling you this thing that I'm going to tell you. I've been excited for several weeks. I mean, that's the day I get to tell them this thing that, that I'm going to tell them. And, and you all know I'm going to tell you something. 
in a little bit. And, and the reason that I'm so excited about this thing that I get to tell you in a little bit is that I truly believe it has the opportunity to impact your lives for the long haul. And when I say the long haul, I mean actually into eternity, like forever, th this thing that I'm going to tell you. It has that potential in it. And, and, and so if I get a little bit keyed up inside or outside, actually, you wouldn't really care if I got keyed up inside. You, you care more if I get too keyed up outside. So if, if I manifest all the keyed upness that I feel, will you all just, can I ask for some advance? Please nod. Some advance forgiveness for, for cause I'm going to tell you something, but I can't, you're, some of you are like, well, why don't you just tell us now? I can't do that. Cause I, I can't just pull up the harvest. I got to plant the seed. I got to water it. I got to till the soil. I got to teach you stuff. And, and only when the message is ready, only when you're ready, only, only when you we're all ready, can I tell you this thing that I'm going to tell you? Because we at Good Shepherd, we are on a learning curve with Jesus. We've been looking over Jesus's shoulder. We've been Eve's dropping with Jesus and his closest followers as he gives those closest followers some upper, upper level PhD sorts of training on what it means to be his apprentice. And, and it's so interesting that this learning curve that we are on has actually taken place in Mark chapter eight, as, as I've mentioned. That's the place where the, the gospel of Mark as a book, where, where Mark as a literary artist himself that's where the book itself has this moment of curvature. Isn't that cool that we're on a learning curve where the book itself is on its own learning curve because everything in Mark changes after chapter eight, before it was the bright lights of ministry, and now it's sort of the gloomy dungeons leading to execution. The Bible, when, when you really read it, and you read it with other people, and you have a little bit of guidance, man, it is so fascinating. Because in these, in these moments leading up to the encounter we're going to look at today, all this stuff has happened on a road, we presume, uh, in, in near a village called Caesarea Philippi in ancient Israel. And, and in that conversation that Jesus has had with his inner circle a couple of weeks ago, if, if, if you're with us and paying attention, you might remember, and if you weren't with us, I'm so glad you're here today. But a couple of weeks ago, we saw that Peter, St. Peter, well-known, you know, he's got churches and cities named after him all over the world. And he's the first human being who ever gets the most important question that anyone can ever answer when Jesus says, I don't care what other people are saying about me. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first human being ever to get it right. And he says, you are the Messiah, you're it, you're the, you're the savior. And then, and then immediately Peter begins telling Jesus what kind of savior he's going to be. He begins setting Jesus's agenda. For, it's the nerviest moment in the Bible. It's like, you're God. Now, let me tell you, you, you need to listen to me, God, about what kind of God you need to be. And, and that, that sort of moment of nerviness earns Peter the severest rebuke possible? Look what Jesus says to him in Mark chapter 8 and verse 33. But, but when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter, get behind me, Satan. So if you ever want to get on Jesus's bad side, tell him what kind of savior to be. And it really is the, the sternest kind of correction. And, and, and 
falling so rapidly on the heels of Peter's great moment. I mean, he goes from the goat to a goat, and he does it like that with just neck snapping, head spinning speed, and and all of it together, Peter, Peter's mountaintop, Peter's river bottom, and the speed with which it happens, it just reminds us of how steep their learning curve was. I mean, these people with Jesus, they were on a steep learning curve. If it was a challenge for them to know what it meant to be Jesus's follower, imagine what it's like for us. So in the aftermath of, of all of that, look, look where the story picks up. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, after Jesus has just called his main guy, Peter, Satan. Verse 34, then he called the crowds to him. Now, stop right there. It's as if Jesus immediately goes from a huddle. He's been talking just to his bros, just 12 of them. And now he says, okay, I've called Peter, Satan. Peter's gone from the goat to a goat. Now I need to bring everybody in. So he goes from a huddle to a whole stadium. He goes from a behind closed doors kind of conversation to up on the platform. And I'm going to be talking to a whole mess of people and a whole mess of people they are. And, and as I think about the, the kind of crowds that must have assembled him, and I, I, I would imagine we're going to from 12 to probably hundreds of people that there had to be folks in that crowd and even among the disciples who really admired Jesus. And they were impressed with him. They were inspired by him. They'd heard some of the things that he said. They, they observed some of the stands that he took. And yeah, Jesus was, so you, you list like most admired people in Israel in that day. And those people, yeah, I, that, that Jesus, he, he is on my list of really most admired people. So with that crowd, look what happens next. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever, ah, hold it right there. Whoever, that means that, that what he's fixing to say applies to everybody. What he's just been saying is for his 12. And now he calls the crowd and by saying, whoever, everybody within the sound of my voice, this applies to you. And when you consider that, 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 that whoever, that applies to the strung out, the beaten up, and the left behind. But it also applies to the put together, and the decision makers, and the risk takers, and all points in between. And what does, he, what does he say to all points in between? Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And this is, to me, this is really interesting. And, and it relates to something that I just learned very, very recently. And, and uh, do you know, now this is not something that I learned recently. It's something I've known for a while. D- do you know what question? If, you, if you're reading the Bible, if you're trying to interpret the Bible, do you know what question you should never, how often? You should never ask. You should never ask, well, what does it mean to me? Which is so egocentric and so American, by the way. Because it doesn't matter what it means to you. It matters 
what it means. The, the Bible doesn't mean something special just to me. Pers- the Bible means something for all of us and for you and for me to get away from sort of that egocentric, dare I say, narcissistic way of saying, well, what does it mean to me? What's it speaking to me? No, what does it mean? The, the, the key thing you got to figure out and what, what does it mean is what, what it meant to the people who first heard it. What did it mean to Mark's first readers? And in this case, in this case, what did it mean to the hundreds of people gathered with Jesus along that road? When he said, if anyone wants to be my disciple, take up your cross, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. What did it mean to those people? Because he didn't say it to you. He said it to them. So what did it mean when he said that to them? Because it's so interesting. Those people on the road with him that day in Mark chapter eight, none of them, not a single one of them knew that Jesus was going to the cross. They didn't know that he was going to be crucified. We read these words filtered through 2,000 years of church history. We know how, most of us, we know how the story ends. He goes to the cross. We filter these words through 2,000 years of church history and hundreds of thousands of church buildings all adorned with crosses. And we're like, oh yeah, he's, he's talking about following, following him right to that execution cross. That's what he means. He's taking, that's not what they thought he meant. His first audience hundreds of people with him on the road, they knew, they knew that Romans, because they were under Roman occupation, they knew that the Romans had a lot of ways devised to kill their enemies and to kill their criminals. The Romans were very creative in how they executed. This is not really something you want to put on your resume, but the Romans had it on theirs, very creative in their execution methods, and everybody on the road knew that they reserved crucifixion for the most despised of the lot. And so they had all seen, they had seen Roman criminals and Roman enemies. They'd seen them traipsing through the streets of Jerusalem with that wooden beam, a cross beam on their back, headed to the execution stake that was already in the ground. And so when when the first audience heard Jesus say this about take up your cross, he was saying to them, hey, y'all, y'all who want to follow me, are you ready? Are you ready to join the ranks of the despised? Are you ready to join the legions of the losers? The amazing thing is, people responded. Could could you imagine us as we're going to put a big banner out in front of the church? Losers, welcome! And yet people responded. Jesus says, you're going to follow me, you're going to follow me all the way into the most massive kinds of unpopularity you can imagine. And somehow people are like, sign me up. Look at what Jesus says in verse 35, because he's kind of just getting rolling. And in verse 35, he really gets us the, the, the crux of the matter. And I say it's the crux of the matter because that first word for First word of verse 35, for whoever. And when he says for, this this is meaning, this is my summary statement. Everything I've been saying up to this point about my identity as the Messiah and your inability to tell me what kind of Messiah to be and and, and my call that you get to join the, the legions of losers and the ranks of the despised, all that, all that is because of this thing that I'm getting ready to say in verse 35, Jesus said, for whoever wants to save their life will lose it 
But whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. Whoever wants to save their life, whoever wants to protect their popularity and their possessions and their reputation, who, whoever wants to keep admiring me and maybe occasionally ignore me, every, whoever wants to save your life will lose it. And the reason Jesus really narrows in on that is because he knows something about all of us. He knows that you can lose everything chasing after nothing. Did you know that? Some of you live that. You've, you've lost everything. You lost family. Chasing after a moment of pleasure. You've lost finances because they promised overnight returns. You can lose everything chasing after nothing. And that's because Jesus realizes when, when he says, you want to save your life, you're going to lose it and lose in your life for my sake, you'll actually find it. That's because Jesus really knows the hollowness that emerges from life without him. Makes me think of a, a, the, this novel that we, we called Therapy, in which the lead character is involved in therapy. Yes, this is not a trick question. The novel is called Therapy. The lead character is in therapy. And as part of his healing, his therapist asks him to write a list, a, a, a list of every good thing in his life and every bad thing in his life. And under good things, this character wrote th this. We're going to have it up on the screen. He, he said, professionally successful. Well off, good health, stable marriage, kids successfully launched into adult life. Can we just pause right there and say amen? <laughs> nice house, as many holidays as I want. Now, that's an incredible list, isn't it? And I, and I suspect there's a, a few of you, that list could be yours. You're like, yeah, I know exactly what that kind of life and that kind of list is about. That's the good thing. On the Bad things in life, just one thing you wrote. Feel unhappy most of the time. And some of you could have written that as well. And when Jesus says, you who save your life will lose it, he diagnosed our problem 2,000 years before we even encountered it. Because the, the solution to the bad side of life is never more stuff and it's only more Jesus because Jesus isn't even finished being brilliant in this little section. Look at what he says in verses 36 and 37, kind of a question pile on. He says this, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul. What, what good is it for, for, for you to get all the popularity and all the acclaim and all the possessions and, and all the achievement and yet forfeit your soul? And the people hearing that, because remember, it's who, that's who it was to. They were like, you mean, you mean it is possible for me to get everything I want and let lose everything I need? And Jesus is decisive and all that? And Jesus says, that's exactly what I mean. And people would have been like, you, you, you mean it, it's possible just to ad admire you and it's possible uh, sometimes to ignore you? It, it's possible to be impressed by you or interested in you and yet to spend eternity apart from you? Because that's what he means when he says forfeit your soul. It's possible to do all that 
Jesus is, yeah, yeah, that's exactly what I mean. And all of that, realizing how stark the choice is that Jesus leaves us with and and how accurately he diagnoses, diagnoses, what does he do? How accurately he gives us the diagnosis, get it out of the verb and into the noun, Talbot. How accurately he gives us the diagnosis of what our life is like. And it all leads me to this thing that I've been wanting to tell you for so long. And here it is. You can admire Jesus all the way to hell. Or you can follow him all the way to heaven. Yeah, you can be interested in and you can be impressed by Jesus. You can give a thumbs up to some of the things that you've heard he said and some of the things that you've heard that he stands for and you can keep him at that kind of arm's distance all the way to your own destruction or you can surrender yourself to him all the way to glory. You you can be kind of like that Methodist preacher told me a generation ago. And this preacher said to me, I like Jesus, but he's not my savior. This is a preacher. Can you imagine being part of that church? I like Jesus, but he's not my savior. And and you can follow that kind of thinking and that kind of logic and that kind of admiration all the way to your own destruction. You see, what I really, what Jesus is addressing is people who admire him as a role model and don't surrender to him as Lord. And God forbid anyone within the sound of my voice spend any of your life admiring Jesus, setting him up as a role model, and then you die and you've never said yes to him fully, finally, completely, and you end up spending eternity apart from the same one that you admired. What tragedy would that be? You you can admire Jesus all the way to hell and follow all the way to heaven. And and what I'm I'm telling you, when I talk about following him all the way to heaven, that that doesn't mean, man, I've I've heard what Jesus says and and, and I like him and I'm kind of spiritual. I don't really want to be religious, but I do want to be spiritual and like... Do you know what the word religion, where it actually comes from? Think of how it's spelled, R-E-L-I-G-L-I-G. It's from the same root word as ligament. Like those things going on in your body that if you didn't have them, you couldn't hold your body together. And so what religion, and instead of being this insulting word that we've, we've allowed to become, religion is, is a way of saying, I need other, I am such a mess. I need other people to help me put it back together. Can I hear an amen for that? I am, I am such a mess. I can't invent my own faith. I'm such a mess. I need to inherit what is ancient and unchanging and true. That's what it means to be religious. And the truth is, it doesn't sound as cool out in our culture. The truth is you can't be genuinely spiritual unless you're first authentically religious. You can't really admire Jesus completely and fully until you are completely and honestly surrendered to him as Lord. And I know some of you think, man, this sounds so hard, so so challenging. And you're, what about my identity? I don't don't want to lose my identity. I don't want to follow Jesus so closely that I disappear. Do you know how freeing all this, do you know how freeing it is to follow Jesus? Instead of identifying yourself, finding your value in all those things that you buy, you discover the fact, your value in the fact that you are bought. 
Instead of understanding your significance by counting up your possessions, your real joy comes in the fact that you're his possession. Or instead of measuring measuring your role in life by the, by the number of trophies that are in your trophy case, you instead realize that you are one of the trophies in his, that he owns you, has bought you, delivered you, and he puts you in his trophy case and he says to the host of heaven, look, look people, here's another one of mine. And when you have that in your life, how in the world could you want anything else? You can admire Jesus all the way to hell (laughs) or follow him all the way to heaven. And I know some of you are a little unsettled. Man, is it really, is it really that cut and dry, black and white, either or? And aren't you getting a little serious on this towel? I'm just reporting what the man said. I, I didn't thank God I didn't come up with the gospel. I just have this incredible privilege of inheriting it and explaining it. And some of you, again, you're you're so worried about, well, what does it mean to, to, to really follow him? Am I, gonna, am I even going to have to follow him all the way to the grave? It's interesting, our, our Christian friends in India where we have partnerships, they do it all the time, follow him all the way to the grave. Because think about it this way, Jesus has never gone into a grave that he didn't burst right out of. Never once. And he's not going to start now. When Jesus goes into a grave, all he does is borrow it to begin with. So how can we be fearful of that? You can admire Jesus all the way to hell. And what a shame that would be to like Jesus, to be impressed by Jesus, to be inspired by Jesus, but never have surrendered to Jesus and to spend eternity apart from the Savior that you admire. You can follow him all the way to heaven. Which which will it be for you? Are you the one who keeps Jesus kind of at an arm's length? It's a little bit respectable to be in church or to tune into church? or, Or will you be one of those who says that first time, yes, and then essentially every day the rest of your life? I am such a mess. I need a Messiah. I really am powerless without him. But because of him, I'm never helpless. Which will it be for you? You're going to admire what he offers or surrender to it? Back during the presidency of Andrew Jackson, which is in the 1830s, there was a postal worker named Wilson who took part in a train robbery. And in the train robbery that Wilson took part in, there was a fatality. So he was part of a group who robbed the train and killed a guy. Well, Wilson was caught and he was tried and he was convicted and he was sentenced. And he was sentenced, as you might suspect, in the 1830s. Justice was swift and justice was severe and he was sentenced to death. He was going to hang on the gallows pole. But Wilson caught a break. 
unknown to him, he had a family member who was friends with Andrew Jackson, and that friend intervened directly with the president and pled Wilson's case, and Andrew Jackson, born in North Carolina or South Carolina, we don't know, but Andrew Jackson, y'all ever been to Andrew Jackson State Park, people? Come on, Andrew Jackson, Andrew Jackson issued Wilson a pardon. He caught a break. Except the most interesting thing happened. Andrew Jackson on death row got his pardon and looked at it and didn't accept it, which brought up all kinds of dilemmas. Can a, can a, can a person be pardoned if all they do is admire the piece of pardon on which, piece of paper on which the pardon, you try it, the piece of paper on the <laughs> Peter Piper, the piece of paper. The piece of paper on which, which, on which the pardon was written, or does he actually have to accept it? And so this dilemma actually worked its way all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, where Chief Justice John Marshall ruled that a pardon is only a pardon if it's accepted. If a pardon is not accepted, it is not worth the paper it's written on. And Wilson, the pardon one, hung on the gallows pole. Don't make, don't make the same tragic miscalculation. Don't make the same tragic mistake. Don't fritter away your life admiring Jesus when you can surrender him. You can admire Jesus all the way to heaven or follow him all the way to heaven. Let's pray. So Lord, thank you. Thank you that you're a good God. Thank you that you make our options clear. Thank you that you have done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And I ask God through music, atmosphere, invitation. You would make it irresistible to keep anyone from saying yes to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.